0: jerk this is a jar of dirt yes is the jar of dirt going to help if you don't want it give it back then it helps Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about Minutes 11 and 12, which begin with a sunburnt old man trying to sell his hair, and it ends with the mariner entering the atoll.
1: There is something inherently sad about the opening of this minute. Oh,
0: absolutely. But I just want to gush real quick about how much I love the atoll set Because they totally went overboard and built it for real. Like, I went and found Thrillists, the top 10 most expensive movie sets ever built, and the A toll was at the very top of that thing. And I went and looked it up because I wanted to make sure that I got this right that it was a thousand tons of floating steel that they built off the coast of Hawaii, and it measured a quarter mile in circumference and used up all the available steel on the Hawaiian Islands, forcing producers to ship in more from California. And
1: it's so over the top. It feels so unnecessary.
0: The sheer scale of it is pure madness.
1: I don't blame them for actually building the thing, but did it have to be built out of steel? Like, <laughs> it just seems overboard.
0: I know. If this was made today with today's technology, this Atoll set that we see in this opening shot would have been a miniature. And all of the shots of them in the actual atoll, would have been in a swimming pool with green screens set up all around it and the expansiveness of the interior would have just been CGI. Them cutting shots together of different sections of the atoll. They would not have built the entire massive thing.
1: Yeah. Them building it caused them a lot of problems because Hawaii is not a perfect calm weather place. Mm -hmm. It rains like every day. At some point during the day in Hawaii. It is turbulent.
0: The cool part about the atoll is that they could drag it around. That is cool. But if you've got shots set up in the atoll, you can only shoot in so many directions. Because otherwise you would get the mountains of Hawaii in behind you. And so when it comes to setting up shots, it can be maddening trying to get it to work. And the fact that they committed to it is... So absolutely remarkable.
1: <laughs> I know that you are delighted by the physical nature of the set. Yeah. I cannot get on board with it. Really? I can't get behind it. It's just so ridiculous. And I think there's a happy medium between doing everything with CGI that wasn't necessarily available at the time mm-hmm. and the extremes that they went to. I think it could have been done practically In still a very analog-esque sort of way. Yeah. What a waste of money and time. This set was a huge contributor to how over budget this movie went.
0: I know we were talking about this the other day. How if they remade this movie or did some sort of Fury Road-esque continuation of the story. Mm -hmm. How much money they could save using modern technology.
1: And I think there are plenty of things about the movie that would have been better What this movie has that can't be improved upon is a sense of quality. You never feel like you're not actually there because you are actually there. Mm -hmm. You are actually in the water. You're actually going that fast, sailing away from marauders. It feels real because it is real. So that is something that cannot be improved upon.
0: Even the underwater diving bell sequence, it has a weird feel to it because it is composite, but everything around it, every element of that shot is real. It's just composited weird. Yeah. But we'll talk more about that once we actually get to it because that's still very far down the movie. And in this meantime, outside this atoll, there are a bunch of small craft floating around the doors trying to get inside.
1: It is their homeless population. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And there's one particular guy that we are dealing with. He is this beet red, sunburnt old guy, and he's got this full head of pure white hair, which looks amazing, contrasted against everything else in this shot, but he's shouting up about how he wants to sell his hair in exchange for water, and I think you said it best. It's very depressing when you think about it too hard.
1: Yeah, it definitely brought to mind Joe March, who did the same thing. She sold her hair to have the money, to be able to do something. I can't remember what she used the money for, but it was a necessity. You know, she did what she had to do to make sure that she and her family were taken care of. It's the same thing this guy is doing. Mm -hmm. It's very sad. It definitely says something about their society. They are a subsistence level society. There is little by way of arts and higher pursuits. Although we will see that that is actually not quite true. There are higher pursuits going on. But most people are there to survive. Mm -hmm.
0: I find it funny that you went straight to Little Women for (laughs) your source of someone selling hair. The first thing that I thought of when I realized that we were selling hair is Les Miserables with Fantine. How when she was kicked out of the factory, one of the things that she did in pretty much every adaptation of that story is selling her hair in order to try and make ends meet.
1: Yes. Yes. She also sells her teeth.
0: Mm-hmm. And ultimately the rest of her body. Yes. It's very wow. tragic.
1: Let's go more depressing.
0: Yeah. That's why this show is called Les Miserables. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. It's not called The Cheerful Folk.
1: <laughs> on a lighter note, I love his clamshell boat. Oh, yeah. He has built himself a shelter in the form of a half shell.
0: You've got the boat and he's got a little outrigger and he's got the half covering that comes up on it. And it makes sense got to protect yourself from the sun however you can.
1: There are other He's boats milling it, around though. that we see nobody else has a boat like this one.
0: Mhm. And it's I, th- very cool. I
1: think it's pretty great.
0: I got caught up in the idea of using hair to make line because it's mentioned later on in the movie once we actually get to the trading barge that they have rope but it's made out of human hair and I'm like, "Well, okay, how good is human hair rope in reality?"
1: I know you looked it up, so you're going to give us an answer. My guess is pretty dang good.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much it. I found a YouTube video from a guy called Tim Rayley. He calls himself Primitive Tim, and he's kind of a granola sandals type from what I saw in the video, but basically he cut off a year's worth of his hair, and he strung it together into a string and he got good five or six feet out of it just by using a method of what is it called the reverse wrap method where the way you roll the hairs together and then you wrap them around and he took that length of string and he put it up in a bow and he used that hair to effectively shoot arrows. And he said that the benefits of hair rope is that it's waterproof and abrasion resistant compared to line that's made with plant fibers. He said that it does tend to slip on surfaces. So that's a bit of a downside. But as far as strength is concerned, it's pretty dang strong.
1: Nice. Which is exactly why the Enforcer and the Gatesman have a positive opinion <laughs> about this trade. They're not going to let the guy in. But like, you can make a side trade if you want for his hair, but he's not coming inside.
0: Yeah. Because
1: I, he does have a lot of hair.
0: I was wondering about the idea of making rope out of kelp. Because in Waterworld, you would think that there would be a lot of kelp floating around. Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to rope made from natural materials, if you've got fibers then you can string those together into some sort of rope. I was looking at different instructables and they talk about how you can take sticks and you can soften them up to the point where you can pull the plant fibers out and then twist those together into rope. And so I'm like, well, okay, well, what about seaweed and kelp and things like that? We don't see a lot of it floating on the surface in this movie.
1: No, it would be something that needs to be dived for
0: dredged up somehow yes this Is probably why they still use hair as a more consistent source
1: right the trouble with hair is that it is subject to the health of the person growing it
0: yeah if you've got crackly breakable hair not going to be great stringing it together into a rope it's not like you're worried about just that one strand
1: Right. But to be able to do that, you need some certain length of hair. But Mm -hmm. if the person growing it is not healthy, the hair is just going to keep breaking and you're not going to get lengths of hair. And to a physical body, the hair on your head is the least of its problems. It needs to take care of your central organs first. So it's going to devote all of its resources to doing that. And if it needs to sacrifice your head of hair to do it, it's going to. So... Coming across somebody who actually has a good head of hair and is willing to give it up, that's really something. I'm actually surprised that anybody has a good head of hair.
0: (laughs) You mentioned up on top of the wall, we've got the Gatesman and the Enforcer. I want to dip quickly into the Gatesman to get introduced to him because I looked up Rick Aviles, a bit of his history, He, according to IMDb, is best known for this movie. He was Mad Dog in Cannonball Run. He was a character in Carlito's Way in 1993. And he was someone that you might recognize in the movie Ghost. He played Willy Lopez.
1: Yes, he did. I do remember him from Ghost. I knew I recognized his face. So that solves that mystery.
0: Rick Aviles was born on October 14th, 1952 in New York City. In the 1970s and 1980s, Aviles worked as a stand-up comedian on the Greenwich Village nightclub circuit in New York, and then in 1981, he landed the role of Mad Dog in Cannonball Run. He went on to act in 14 more film productions, and in 1987, Aviles landed a small part as the maintenance man in the film The Secret of My Success, starring Michael J. Fox. And that same year, He became the host of It's Showtime at the Apollo and continued that job until 1991.
1: That's a good gig.
0: That is a very good gig. I found one of his stand-up sets from, I think, 1991, and he was very funny.
1: Oh, yeah, I noticed. You were delighted.
0: He's got a lot of pride in his Puerto Rican heritage, and he tells a lot of funny anecdotes about living in New York City and dealing with people of different backgrounds. Nice. So... It was in 1990 that Avila's landed his most memorable role, Willie Lopez, as the killer of Patrick Swayze's Sam Wheat in the film Ghost. That film was arguably a smash hit. I can't think of too many people that aren't at least familiar with the pottery scene from Ghost.
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course. That one
0: stands out. Something that I didn't realize was that Ghost won several Oscar nominations. Didn't realize that. Oh, okay. So among the television series that Aviles appeared in was Mr. and Mrs. Dracula in 1980, The Day Women Got Even in 1980 as well. He was also on The Carol Burnett Show in 1991, and another role that you'll probably recognize him from, he played the rat man in the Stephen King miniseries The Stand in
1: 1994. Oh, okay. I'll have to go back and notice him.
0: Yeah, you remember when... Oh, gosh. Who's the guy from Forrest Gump that was also in The Stand? He does a lot of stuff for veterans. Uh,
1: Oh, Gary Sinise.
0: Gary Sinise hangs up the phone in that arcade, and he bumps into a guy, and he's like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And the dude who turns around is like, the rat man, forgive you this time.
1: Oh, yeah. That's Rick Avilas. Nice. Yeah.
0: He passed away in 1995 on March 17th. He died in Los Angeles From complications of AIDS that he contracted after getting HIV from using heroin. So it's a very sad situation because he died before this movie was released.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. And that is very tragic.
0: But he's great in this movie just because he has so many well-delivered lines.
1: (laughs) He does. Yeah.
0: One of them is in this chunk that we're going to talk about. So yeah. Getting back into the minute, you've got the sunburnt old man he's talking about. Take small hydro. He's selling hair for water, which makes it even worse.
1: Oh, <laughs> it does make it worse. Like, all he wants is water.
0: Like, if you are destitute in today's world, you can at least get clean water for pretty much free if you go to the right spot. If you walk into a shopping mall, you can find a water bubbler and get clean water for free.
1: In our modern society, there are certain things that are human rights.
0: Certain safety and, nets in place.
1: Yeah, and clean water is one of them. And it's not something that we have globally achieved. No. It's something that we are continuously working towards, making sure everybody has access to clean water. And it's a huge mark in the change of society where in water world, not everybody has it. And the Gatesman does not feel obligated to make this trade. He doesn't feel obligated on a humanitarian level to give this guy water and huge change in society Mm -hmm. and then also not a huge change in society for the not great parts of society right
0: (laughs) when the enforcer confers with the gatesman and says do a side barter i have to wonder if there's a small opening elsewhere in the wall where they can do these little side barters without having to open the gate Or if it's a situation where it's buckets and pulleys and things like that.
1: I could see either way. Anything to keep out the riffraff.
0: Right. I'd like to think that at the base of one of these towers, there is a little side dock area where Mm -hmm. bartering can happen. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily want to let everybody through your gates.
1: No, you don't. It's
0: a security issue at that point.
1: It is a security issue. And an overpopulation issue. At first, the mariner isn't let in because the goods that he brings for trade are not in the correct spot of the supply and demand scale. Mm -hmm. So, we don't need you here. We don't want an extra person who doesn't bring something valuable to the community in. And, you know, that pickiness is understandable in this world. It's a shame because it is so exclusionary. It's a gated community. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is, a gated community where judgments are made upon who gets to come in and who doesn't. That always brings up feelings for me (laughs) from my childhood because I was a second child and my sister would not let me in places. And there's a great amount of hurt that happens when... You know that on the other side of that door, something fun is happening, something good is happening, and they said no to you. Other people get to go in, but you don't. And that is the plight of a second child.
0: I mean, it's arguably also the plight of many millions of people that are victim to systemic racism and income equality and all that other stuff. But,
1: Absolutely.
0: But also second children.
1: Yes. Question, first child, did you ever do something like that to your brother?
0: Oh, yeah, all the time.
1: Oh, my gosh. Like, it makes me want to cry. I have specific memories, very specific memories of my sister not letting me in. And they're very upsetting.
0: I imagine so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my favorite one. Not my favorite. It's like my least favorite. I don't think I've ever been so angry with my sister as this story. So we were at a breakfast place like a Dunks or something like that. We live in New England. So, of course, we were at a Dunkin' Donuts and we were going to go from there to school. So my sister was driving. I think she was a junior maybe and I was a sophomore. We went to different high schools because I went to a technical high school and she went to the town high school and we had another friend with us. So her and her friend were in the front seats of her car. And it was time to go to school. So she's like, Julia, get in the car. We need to leave. So I would reach for the handle, and she'd drive away. And I'd reach for the handle, and she'd drive away. So finally, after some serious screaming and yelling at her, I just walked away and started Mm. walking to school. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been so angry with her. And it was partly because there was another person in the car that I was being humiliated in front of somebody else who I considered a friend. And honestly, I don't remember the resolution. I did not walk to school. My sister drove me to school. So at some point I got in the car. But there were some refusing moments of me getting in the car when mm. she realized that, okay, she really does have to get in the car. I refuse to get in the car. <laughs> and I doubt there anyone got in trouble because we didn't really get into trouble. We didn't get in trouble as teenagers. But I'm pretty sure my parents knew about it. Mm. Yeah, because I totally told on her. As much as my sister was like a first child, let's be mean to the second child, I was a second child, I'm going to tell on my sister for everything kind of child. So it goes both ways.
0: I'm not going to sit here and try and justify anything that older siblings do to younger siblings. Because nine times out of ten, there is no justification for it.
1: Yeah, my (laughs) school locker was full of my sister's clothes, though. So, yeah, it goes both ways.
0: So the mariner, he sails up to the atoll. We push the other people looking to get in aside as this big yacht sails up and the first question that's asked is what language and the enforcer specifies english and thank goodness because you don't want to have kevin costner have to speak in any other language other than english
1: no he's a california two words (laughs) in another language
0: i would like to think that the enforcer and the people inside the atoll are fully capable of speaking full Greek, but they hear kevin costner yell out in Portuguese, and they're like oh oh english please
1: yeah right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the mariner he's standing on one of the floats and he reaches over and he pulls away this covering to show what he has on offer
1: oh this is so i love this kind of stuff
0: all right so were you able to identify most of the things in the net
1: honestly no I was not. I was able to identify for sure two things and then a guess on a couple of other things.
0: All right. So what did you see?
1: Okay. The thigh master That was easy. Obviously. Yeah. And then I was like 90% sure about a pair of skis. Mm-hmm. They were definitely broken off. I think snapped at the back end.
0: So I think the skis that we're looking at, it looks like we're facing from the rear of the ski like what looks like cutouts could be the back of the ski or it could just be that we're looking at a certain angle of the ski where you know how skis pop up in the front yes it could just be that those are just the front of the ski that pop up and the angle that we're looking at the shadow looks like they're broken
1: okay okay they did also look a little stunted a little short
0: yeah only one of the clips is, is still on there. there yeah so they've Pretty much been broken.
1: So this would have been the same trawling expedition as the Mariner got the ski boots. Do you think when he found them, they were attached? They might have been. And he snapped them off. Maybe that's why there's no clips on the skis.
0: Probably. He was wrestling with them and ripped them off, I guess, accidentally. Yeah. The bolts that keep all that stuff in place probably rusted away a long time ago. So it might have been that when he grabbed it, it just came apart in his hand anyway.
1: Just disintegrated. Mm -hmm. So there was a few things that I kind of had a best guess. And then honestly, these are not good guesses. So (laughs) you can make fun of me. There was an object, like a long skinny object with like a bell shaped end on the upper right hand side. Mm Kind of looked like a clarinet.
0: That's what I thought it was as well. Okay.
1: I kind of felt silly for thinking it might be a clarinet, but I feel justified. (laughs) (laughs) And then kind of below that there was some sort of. Canister, Like a cylinder. Yeah. At first I thought it might be a glass jar, but then taking a closer look, I don't think it was made of glass. It's
0: so crusted over, it's hard to tell. Yeah,
1: I thought it was more made of metal than glass. That was really all I felt confident even making a guess on. There were some thin arching pieces that kind of looked like fishing rods, but I don't think they were fishing rods.
0: Right below the Thighmaster, it looked to me like a pie dish.
1: Oh, yeah, like a cake pan or something. And yep. that's the noise that we hear, mm-hmm. is the thigh master hitting that pan. And it sounded a bit tinny.
0: Yeah. And then immediately to the left of the skis, we've got an old license plate.
1: Oh, you know what? As soon as you said license plate, now I see that it's a license mm-hmm. plate, like a British style. The narrower, longer.
0: But the numbers look big enough that it might be American style as well. I think the idea is that all of this was taken from a ski resort. Definitely. But yeah, I can see where it does look longer, and then I think those bent things are actually old ski poles.
1: That occurred to me too. For one, they're found in a pair, mm-hmm. and but they're so bent. Yeah, they're not supposed to look like that.
0: They're not supposed to bend like that and stay bent unless they are. Warped from being underwater.
1: Yeah. Okay. They are definitely 100% ski poles. I'm totally on board with that because you can see at the bottom of the lower one, right near its bottom tip, there's like a black line that crosses. And that's the disc that makes it so the ski poles don't just sink into the snow.
0: Yep. And at the top of that same pole, the handle is very reminiscent of a ski pole handle.
1: There also seems to be on the upper one a tag. Yeah. So I think that... He might have
0: taken these from a rental.
1: Yeah, that the skis, the boots, and the poles were probably in a set waiting to be either rented or being stored by the owner.
0: Yeah. The only thing I was unable to identify, there is a rectangular shaped object to the immediate right of the skis. Yes. It looks to me like it has the shape of a book.
1: Yeah, it does. It's got like a blue center. And then it's all like moldy green on the outside.
0: With a little bit of brown tossed in there.
1: Yeah. If it were actually a book, I don't think the Enforcer would have sent him away.
0: Because paper paper is is super
1: duper valuable. So I don't think the Mariner would have put a book in his pile of, hey, look what I have for trade. Just like he didn't put the soil in the look what I have for trade category. Mm -hmm. I am surprised that the enforcer said no to this batch of goods because there's some good stuff in here. Yeah. The poles and the skis, they are long, bendy, resilient objects mm-hmm. that you can use to construct things. The Thigh Master, it has tension that can be hard to find in this world. I think that tension can be really useful. Never mind like the foam around the curls. Yeah. And the curls themselves, like that bended metal. These seem like really handy objects to me.
0: Yeah, they do. So the enforcer standing up on the wall says, flags down, drifter, we've got enough traders.
1: This phrase of flags down kind of caught me.
0: Well, okay. What did it say to you?
1: It said to me that there are flags In this world that communicate intentions or needs. Yes. Just like in our world.
0: I love that idea that there are a series of flags, like colors mean things. Flags mean things. I love it.
1: The Wikipedia article on the International Code of Signals is really, really well done. And it has a set of those nautical flags that we see all over the place and listing what they mean. None of them have anything to do with trade, though. Really? Yeah, they're mostly distress signals. We need a medic. We have a medic. We have a pilot. Turn signals, like, I'm going to go to starboard. I'm going to go to port. Things like, we have explosives on board. We have a diver in the water. Stuff like that. But none of them have anything to do with trade. Hmm. So if our current system of flag communication lasts as long as 500 years down the road it has evolved to what they need
0: exactly so i pulled a section from the ya novel because it talks about the mariner approaching the atoll here the trimaran was in trawler mode its eggbeater sails slowly turning as his ship glided into the area before towering twin gates the mariner hoisted a green flag that identified him as a traitor the mariner had made himself presentable he looked preposterous in his armless leather and canvas jacket, fish skin pants, and ski boots. His goods were laid out for inspection on the deck. Hubcaps, a yo-yo, a broken clarinet, antique silver discs called CDs, and more ancient trash that had become modern treasure.
1: I appreciate the clarification of the clarinet, and that it's the only object that translated from the movie to the book. It's mm-hmm. actually there. The current set of flags do not have anything green in them at all. Really? I don't know if that's on purpose. I would assume that it is on purpose, but I don't know why there's no green.
0: This is where someone like my dad would bring up that in Big Bang Theory there was a joke about Sheldon doing a YouTube channel called Fun with Flags.
1: There's a word for that. Vexillology.
0: Okay. I was making a joke about my dad watching Big Bang Theory, but it's always good to learn about weird, long words.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Being initially rejected, the Mariner tosses aside the rope that he pulled out and he pulls up this jar and it's not immediately apparent what's in it, but everybody on the Atoll is very interested and the Mariner plucks out a handful and lets fall through his fingers dirt. And this is where Rick Aviles's line reading comes into full force because the Gatesman turns to the Enforcer and he goes, Dirt! <laughs>
1: And I love that.
0: <laughs> like, Rick one-word line readings in this movie, he's got some great ones. Yeah, this is the, the first one.
1: We actually skipped over his previous line that I delighted in. It's way from the earlier in the minute when he is talking to the sunburned oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, how many ways can I say it? Go on, hit the swell. <laughs> and the way he says hit the swell is so delightful I'm not even sure why. It's just so enjoyable to hear. And I love that they have this term that they have adapted from, we would say, hit the road, doesn't apply anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's hit the swell. He has great lines in this movie.
0: Because I scrolled up in my notes to find that line, and I'm once again looking at the poster for Ghost, I have to wonder, after willie lopez was dragged away by those shadow creatures and ghosts do you think he was deposited here in Waterworld?
1: oh yes because this is hell (laughs) please tell me kevin costner's character died at the end of white herb i don't know (laughs) because that would be perfect
0: (laughs) my gosh the reveal of the dirt in the book is described this way The mariner pulled up the leather pouch, then he removed the lid from the heavy jar, scooping up the priceless substance therein. The aroma drifted up and tickled the nostrils of the bearded gatesman and the burly enforcer. They could not stop their smiles. Dirt, the gateman sighed. The mariner smiled too, just a little. Open the gates for him, the enforcer said. Nothing on Waterworld, not even the tastiest grilled fish could compare to the scent of dirt.
1: It does a much better job of... Helping us to envision what a big deal this is. Yeah. And the reaction that they have. Their reaction is more about the smell, which is delightful, than about the possibilities of what you could do with it. In the movie, it seems very like, great, we could trade more dirt so that we could plant more tomatoes. Mm -hmm. It just seems very practical. In the book, there, that's an emotional response. It's the way we feel about bread yeah smell bread and we just oh we want it it smells so good it makes it desirable
0: dirt contains possibility yes it's an incubating environment and i think that's where people get such a reaction to it here in Waterworld. and while we don't get the description of scent all of the people crowding around the opening to the atoll to see what he has helps relay that anticipation that we lose out by not having it described the way it is in the book
1: Yes, it brings to mind a scene from Umbrella Academy where the sibling that is a ghost that Klaus sees, Ben, Ben learns how to occupy Klaus's body Mm -hmm. and his first time actually doing it and like going out into the world, he goes straight for dirt and he rubs his feet in it and he hasn't felt texture and warmth in like 17 years he's been a ghost.
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: And he ends up just laying down in the dirt, relishing it. So, yeah, their response in the book is justified. It's the sort of thing that we take for granted.
0: Mm -hmm. The call is made out to open the gates. And, oh my gosh, I love these gates so much. Because they open in what I describe as an accordion style. They are a large opening. And when you crank it on the edges, a series of gears allows the sections of the door to collapse in on themselves so you've got four sections two sections to a side and when they open up they fold in on themselves and I love that because it solves the problem of where are you going to put these doors when they're open and also how are you going to make it so that it's not like you've got one big door that has to displace a ton of water as it swings through you've got Four smaller doors that displace a lot less water and take up less effort to open because they are smaller. They're cutting a smaller profile.
1: Also gives them the option of how much room they want to open. Now, mm-hmm. for the trimaran, they have to open all four sections to let it through. It's quite a large ship. But if they were just going to let through the hair guy, they could just open one of those sections. Yeah. And just let him slip in and close it back up. So it is absolutely also a security measure gives them more control over the comings and goings of people.
0: When I was a lad, one of the things that I loved doing with my Legos is building setups like this. Walled-in, secured, fortress-type things out of Lego. And I would play around with different door designs, whether they were nested sliding doors or dropping down portcullises or drawbridges or something like that. I loved... Constructing the ways to open things. And I don't think I ever tried building something quite like this, quite this mechanically complicated. But I'm pretty sure that I could nowadays.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, does this make you want to go do that?
0: It kind of does, but I've got so many other things to occupy me. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, I've got computer programs now that let me build things digitally. And it's a lot easier to find parts digitally than it is to dig through. Piles and piles and piles.
1: Absolutely.
0: So here we are entering the atoll, and we get to see as the gates open how it is essentially a donut. It is an atoll in the classical sense that there is a bit of a lagoon in the middle, and there are a ton of structures built up around this ring. After the shot where the gates are opening and the trimaran is outside, we see a bunch of workers turning cranks, and I'm able to see in the background that they have large circular shapes. I'm sure that's something having to do with water purification. As they cut to the high angle looking past the windmill blades, you can see the organo barge off to the left side. We'll talk about that a bit later. But also we get to see as we sail in the method that the holders use to keep the riffraff out.
1: Yeah, that's troubling. It certainly brings to mind riot control methods of using a fire hose until you realize that they're trying to fill their boats with water. That's the threat anyways. The threat is drowning them,
0: sinking their boats. When we see the water actually hitting around the boats, I don't know if they're actually trying to fill the boats with water specifically. It looks like they're just creating a current that the people cannot swim against. But no, if they wanted to swamp those boats, they very well could. Yeah. Yeah. I think their humanity dictates that they don't outright murder these people because it's probably easier to keep a boat out than it is a single diver. But at the same time, it feels very mean that they are doing this. But at the same time, we're about to learn in weeks to come that the Atolls are a very sensitive ecosystem. They can't just keep bringing people in and in and in. They'd get swamped.
1: Yeah. Here in the beginning, as we're still getting to know this world these things do seem cruel. And throughout the movie, yeah, we're going to learn more about how things work and how things are delicate, and these methods are still cruel. They're never not going to be cruel, Mm -hmm. but they have reason behind them.
0: Well, it's the same thing that we saw with the compound in Road Warrior. They were very standoffish. They were very defensive. The way that the gyro captain described the people in the compound is that they are not willing to part with their gasoline, and so they... Are very standoffish and aggressive, distrusting, and whatnot. And this is just an extension of that idea that you see in pretty much all post apocalyptic media. When it comes to welcoming energies, Barter Town is definitely a lot more welcoming than the Atoll, but the Atoll is a lot more welcoming than the compound.
1: I agree with that scale.
0: It does bum me out, though, that Frank Thring isn't the one judging who gets to enter the Atoll. <laughs>
1: That'd be pretty
0: excellent. It would be pretty excellent, but unfortunately, that is not the case. And that pretty much brings us to the end of this chunk. We see the Mariner. He is sailing into the Atoll, and the gates are sliding closed behind him. But we'll worry about gates next time because we will get to see a little bit of how things are in the Atoll. And we'll also get a very ominous warning from the Enforcer. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Raider and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute
1: and like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmen.
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 6. See you next time.